Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined soon by James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurley, the longtime screener and producer for the great late Rush Limbaugh, current host of Bo Snurley's Rush Hour on 770 WABC up in New York. But before then, I want to continue what we were talking about on last week's episode with Jack Posobiec, and that, of course, pertains to the continued the continued fallout of the FBI's unprecedented crossing of the Rubicon, what happened at Mar-a-Lago, the pre-dawn raid, the raid heard around the world. So lots and lots of things have unfolded since then. We want to try to break down what we've learned and kind of the questions that remain unanswered here in our brief time. So Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, held a press conference on Thursday. It was a very quick press conference, no, probably no more than five minutes or so. The key takeaway there, I think, was that he basically said that he authorized the raid. He said that it was him. There was speculation as to how high up the food chain. Now, for what it's worth, Corrine Jean-Pierre at the Biden White House is still saying that the Biden administration, or specifically the White House, did not actually know about this and that they learned the exact same way that everyone else knew. I, I find that almost impossible to believe. I mean, literally impossible to believe, I should say. But, I mean, really? Like, the FBI is executing a pre-dawn raid of the man that you just beat for the presidency and who is quite possibly, perhaps likely going to be your challenger again in a couple of years and you didn't know about it? Are you kidding me? So I find that ridiculously hard to believe. Very interestingly, I thought Merrick Garland's just tone, the way that he presented himself in that Thursday press conference was really angry. It was angry, it was defiant, it was overly defensive. He said over and over again how it was beyond reproach, how you basically could not... If you are a good patriotic American, how dare you question the integrity of these FBI agents? Well, you know what? I am someone, I'm a back the blue law enforcement kind of guy. I have done any number of writings, podcasts, debates, kind of opposing slipshod qualified immunity reform and all these things to kind of curtail police. I support the police. I support law enforcement. But there is ample reason to be incredibly distrustful at this point over the FBI. I mean, go back, obviously, to Jim Comey, Hillary Clinton's emails at 33,000 emails on the private server. He kind of comes up with this, quote unquote, extreme carelessness, rhetorical slap of the wrist to totally let her off the hook. We never got anywhere close to a raid. There was never a warrant. There was anything. Hillary was fine. Obviously, the Hunter Biden stuff, is he going to pay for literally laundering his overpaid Burisma position, this ridiculous tens of thousands of dollars a month junket position to kind of sell access to his father? No, of course not. But look at what the FBI has just done now over the course of Joe Biden's presidency. John Eastman has his phone seized. Peter Navarro in handcuffs and leg irons sent to jail. It's a, I mean, we are, we are reaching unprecedented depths of depravity when it comes to what the FBI is currently doing. Nothing worse, obviously, than a pre-dawn raid on the president of the United States. So the dispute here contains allegedly classified boxes of info. So there are a few things to bear in mind here. The first thing to bear in mind is that the president of the United States has plenary power 
to declassify anything he wants to. The Supreme Court re reaffirmed this in a 1988 case called Department of Navy versus Egan. The Commander-in-Chief Clause of Article 2 of the Constitution vests the inherent power in the presidency to declassify or classify anything he wants to. He doesn't have to follow any statute or regulation. It's inherent constitutional authority. So no matter what he took to Mar-a-Lago, we don't know whether it was technically classified or not. In fact, there's a decent legal argument that the inherent act of taking it away from the White House to Mar-a-Lago declassifies it in and of itself. There's a decent argument, at least, for that. By the way, when you become a president, an ex-president, you know, it's not like you're a full civilian. You have a taxpayer-funded office of the presidency. You have Secret Service agents who have security clearance. There's a SCIF, a, a secure facility for viewing sensitive classified information. These documents were not going to go anywhere, people. And what about the judge who signed off on this, Bruce Reinhardt? Bruce Reinhardt, a guy who in a 2017 Facebook social media post was talking about how Donald Trump could not even kiss John Lewis's feet. Someone who had the foresight to recuse himself from a civil lawsuit between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as recently as a month and a half, two months ago. He recused himself then. What changed? What changed? Why do you recuse yourself from the civil lawsuit, but not for the criminal, not for the criminal prosecution? It makes no sense. Again, why didn't a subpoena, why was that not sufficient to get to the bottom of this? We know from Maggie Haberman of the New York Times that they issued a subpoena earlier this year, back in June. The Trump team claimed they were fully complying. This back and forth between ex-president and the National Archives is entirely routine. It's customary. It happens all the time. This happens when a president sets up a presidential library. It did not have to come to this. It did not have to come to this. That's why I refer to the FBI as American Stasi in my most recent column. You can find that at newsweek.com slash opinion. Stasi, of course, referring to the infamous old East German secret police. Great, another great column in Newsweek this week by my buddy Mike Davis calling for Merrick Garland and Chris Ray to be impeached over this, quote, unconscionable Trump raid. Would encourage you guys to check out that op-ed as well. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff here. But anyway, let's take us to a quick commercial break. On the other side, we'll be joined by James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snertley. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. So as mentioned, we're thrilled this week to be joined by the great James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snerdly. Bo is on the air every weekday on 77 WABC in New York, where he hosts Bo Snerdly's Rush Hour. Prior to that, he was the longtime producer for the late, great, greatest of all time, Rush Limbaugh. So, Bo, thank you so much for joining the Josh Hammer Show this week. Hey, happy to be here. I do want to talk about everything going on. It's been a been a crazy week to put it mildly although it seems like every week these days is a crazy week here but before kind of getting into that you know for kind of some of the younger kind of gen z folks the the 20 something listeners who are maybe less familiar with rush than they probably should be can you just talk a little bit about how you and rush first synced up because it's really it's really a fascinating story i think for those who don't know it quite so well 
Well, let's go back to WABC because it was WABC where we met. You know, which is which is interesting, I guess, and sort of a, a, a signal from above. I met Rush on his first day that he was in New York. He was coming, that he moved to New York. He was in New York with Ed, Ed McLaughlin, and I had had a previous relationship with Ed McLaughlin, who was uh, the president of ABC Networks. I was an employee of WABC for many years. I was their last music director and their first talk radio producer. So, which was funny in my life, I walked out of one studio having produced their last music show, walked in another and produced their first talk show. <laughs> um, Rush and I met then. I had no idea, of course, when I met him outside the building at 1330 Avenue of the Americas, that it was a, the weather was absolutely beautiful. I cannot remember the day. I believe it may have been sometime in the lead up to him coming in to do that first show that he did in August. But it was just a beautiful day. I met him. Ed McLaughlin introduced me to him outside and, and told me what he was there for, that he was going to be doing a show, a syndicated show, um, and that uh, he was expecting him to be very, very big, that he was expecting him to, the show to do very well because of how wonderful Rush was. At the time, of course, I hadn't heard of Rush Limbaugh, didn't know who he was. I remember making a comment to him, oh, you're going to be, so I guess, the next Paul Harvey, <laughs> uh, who was, of course, the, the star of ABC Radio's um, lineup in, in, in those days. Right. It was months later that I was rotated on his show. He had an arrangement with WABC where WABC would provide the call screener and um, the engineer to the program. And so as a normal rotation, I was put on a show and once there uh we just clicked i mean it clicked it clicked before then because i was in the newsroom and i used to you know run him stories that i thought he would be interested in and i'll tell you what all one had back in those days if you listen to rush at all he did it in the beginning he, he did a local show with kathleen maloney on wabc she was the news director for an hour and then he did two hours of his syndicated show all you had to do was listen to Rush, and you knew that he was different. You knew that that he was a unique talent. He had an amazing sense of humor. He had a clarity of the issues that no one else had, uh, even then. And he was extremely hilarious. It was a fun show to listen to. His his wit, his 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 humor was unlike anything else that was on talk radio at the time. And it didn't take long before people, the buzz started. Who is this guy? And the buzz started about Rush. You have to listen to this guy. And it just continued to grow from there. It was, it was a meteoric rise for his program. And, and the wit and the humor is, is, are those two of the top traits that come to mind when I think back to you know, some of my formative experiences in my teenage years, in my 20s, listening to Rush as well. I, I guess one question that comes to mind is, how did Rush become the Rush that we associate with things like wittiness and humor? Was he was he born that way, or did he did he formally train that way when it came to talking into a microphone? How how, how did he become this icon who just exuded this talent that we're talking about here? You see, you're talking. That's a really interesting question to me because I think that God. There's a word that some liberals might not like. <laughs> but God actually gives you what you need in this life to fulfill whatever your destiny is. I really believe that. Now, Rush used to say on the air that he was born to host and we were born to listen. 
And yeah, I think that there's a degree of a lot of truth in that, not just a little bit, because here's a guy who had, at, at, at six years old had asked his mom for um, a, this rim coat. Was it a rim coat toy? It was a toy that allowed you to broadcast with a microphone inside the house and be on the quote unquote radio inside the house. And he wanted one of these and his parents got it for him. And he, he, he recalls that he did his first broadcast, his radio broadcast for his mom who used to listen to him in the house. And then he used to sit in front of the TV and turn down the sound and do play by play and do, he was training himself when he was a a kid, I guess uh, without knowing it, but he began his career in a radio studio at age 16 now, most kids are still out being teenagers and worrying about other things at 16. But here he was um, pursuing his FCC license, which you needed in those days, an FCC third class license. And he had done that. And he was already on the air as a teenager. He was fired, as he, as he likes to, as he reminded us many times, because he was always searching to do things his way, to do radio as he wanted to do it. And that ran into conflict with several program directors along the way. He, he had gotten so discouraged at one point that he left radio and went to uh, to pursue a career in sports with, That's right. with the Kansas City Royals. But he returned back to his first law. He's going to give it one more try. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he was passionate about. And that one more try landed him in Sacramento. And in Sacramento, when he was when he had the freedom to do the show, his show, the way he saw fit, he blew it up. The ratings were insane. And I don't think that there is um, that there has been a higher rated show since him since then. And that's where Ed McLaughlin heard him, and that's where he made the connection with Rush and then brought Rush to New York from there. So it seems to me from my perspective that virtually everyone today, you know, the Hannity's of the world, you know, my former boss, Ben Shapiro, everyone in this broader conservative commentary space owes a debt of gratitude to Rush. I, I think that would not be overstating it at all. From your perspective, did he... Did he single-handedly create the conservative talk radio industry, or or was that no. slightly overstating it? Slightly overstating it. There were conservatives on the air before Rush. Bob Grant in New York had a brilliant career, um, and then you had some of the other some of the other guys that were doing it. Uh, uh, Barry, I'm, I'm having a moment. I can't remember his name. Um, we had several other broadcasters that were doing conservative radio, but none of them had a national program. None of them certainly had the kind of impact right. that Rush did. So there were scattered conservatives on the air. I mean, Bob Grant in New York was blazing. Um, and and he his numbers were great in New York. He was an institution in New York. Uh, but when Rush came, it was... See, Rush did something that other people didn't do. R- Rush was simply the best at it i mean there's no way uh, there's no other way that i can i can put it he was the best at it and when you listen to him you knew you were listening to somebody right that was the best of his craft you know he he, he wasn't 
mean spirited. He was intent on having fun. In fact, that was a big part of his show. More fun than a human being is allowed to have. Because he believed him. He he had a good time on the air. He loved being on the air. This is what this is what his love was. And and that energy was transmitted along with everything else that he said, underlying the things that he said. He could he could talk about almost anything and make it sound interesting. But underneath all of it was his passion and his love for doing it. And that's what I think was so magnetic. And that's not a tangible. You can't, you either have that or you don't. And he had it. And he had the talent uh, to do this, to, to become a, this talk radio icon. He had a singular talent that nobody else could match. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of a little bit? You know, I, I was born in 1989, so I was one of those guys who kind of first picked up a golf club after after watching Tiger Woods. And, you know, for, for the period of time that Tiger Woods was like truly Tiger Woods, right, from like called the year 2000 through 2006, I, I mean, you knew that you were watching someone who was just orders of magnitude. I mean, he was just lapping the rest of the field. I mean, I mean, the debate at that time was whether you would pick Tiger or the rest of the field to win a given tournament. It wasn't whether it was like Tiger or Phil, it was Tiger or the field. And, you know, it was the same way with Rush. I mean, like you knew that you were watching someone who was just clearly kind of lapping everyone else and just you know, just a true, true, true trailblazer. So we're, we're, we're going to take it to a break shortly. And on the other side, I want to finally transition to the Mar-a-Lago Ray and all of that. But one, one kind of final question for you before we take it to a quick break here, Bo. I want to, you know, Rush, in so many ways, he was also not just entertainer. I think he was a teacher. I think he was a teacher. Of, of American patriotism and indeed American conservatism. And, you know, that's definitely a, a running theme, a leitmotif on this show is trying to delineate and distill what American conservatism is and more importantly, what it ought to be in this very crazy time that we are currently alive here. What would Russia, what were kind of the defining characteristics and traits of conservatism as he understood it and distilled it to his listeners? Well, certainly Rush inspired many people to identify as conservatives you can go back and you can look this there's no doubt about it you can look at the numbers pre-rush while russia's show was on the air and 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 throughout the the trajectory of his being on the air and see that the number of people who i who self-identified as conservatives dramatically increased during that and that's because he did define conservatism i mean he 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 talks about often how with the impact that Buckley, William Buckley had on his life and the immense respect he had for William Buckley. I mean, Rush had been reading National Review since he was young. That was one of the first magazines he subscribed to. He talks about that. He also talked about how he came from a conservative house and his dad was extremely conservative and would, was very vocal. And, and, and so he grew up understanding conservatism from an ideological standpoint. He was able to translate that. The way he translated it was into a belief in smaller government, certainly um, a belief in American exceptionalism, which he defined very well as the ability for ordinary Americans to do extraordinary things, which was what our history has been about. Very well said. Thank you for that. So let's go ahead and take it to a quick commercial break. So we're here with James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurgley. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. So, you know, I, Bo, I'm itching for your th own thoughts, obviously, on what happened last Monday at Mar-a-Lago, but I am a pro-police, kind of back-the-blue, pro-law enforcement kind of conservative here. And, you know, I came up thinking that conservatism entailed a certain degree of respect for the military, for, you know, for, the, for our intelligence agencies, the national security apparatus, more generally, things of that nature, right? But as someone who, empirically speaking, is trying to take in new evidence and frankly just observe the world for what it is, I, I have been forced to really reassess a lot of that. I mean, when I see things like Mark Milley, um, the chairman of the, of the Joint Chiefs, talking mm -hmm. about, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and critical race theory, whether it's James Comey and Chris Ray and what has happened to the FBI. I mean, I, I, have you had similar thoughts about, about about trying to kind of reconcile what what is and should be kind of a pro law enforcement kind of rule of law sentiment with 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 what just appears to be just the general woke breakdown of, of these institutions? It, it's 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 been a tough thing for me to try to reconcile. I'm kind of curious how how you think about that. Well, you and I come from a different starting place. You see, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Queens, New York. I grew up watching black kid gets shot and nothing being done about it by by a cop that later would would get off i grew up in, an, in a neighborhood where another black cop stabbed or killed a woman uh for no reason at all black woman they sent him they said he had a mental breakdown they sent him to a mental institution a year later he's out walking the streets again i come from i grew up in the civil rights era i remember the fbi wiretapping dr king i remember that picture of dr king coming out of the meeting with j edgar hoover looking terribly shaken right i have maintained for most of my career that the fbi has been corrupt from the beginning and and i've done a lot of reading on it i'm embarrassed for this nation that j edgar hoover's name is on the fbi building he was to me a criminal because of the things that he did to Italian Americans when the FBI was first being uh, constructed and using the, the, the using that agency as a de facto immigration agency to harass and 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 harm immigrants. And that's part of the FBI's history later through blackmailing presidents, blackmailing political officials. You go back through the FBI, you look at how and the, the question of how 900 FBI files ended up in the Clinton administration hands has never been questioned and never held accountable for it. You go back through the scandals with their evidence lab and no one's really ever been um, held accountable for that. So I, I go back to the Black Panther years where we were certainly aware that the FBI had infiltrated the Black Panthers, which is their right. But the, what they did with that which to me led to outright murder of people that were protesting the United States of America was, 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 was a disgrace. So I've had a very different view of the out of, from the outset about the FBI. I don't believe the hype about the FBI. I mean, I do watch the FBI files and I think they're amazing. 
And I mean, and that's not to disparage the good work that people in the FBI do, because sure. there are any number of agents. And I would say the majority of agents are just that. They deserve our respect. They are what we would hope to have as, in terms of personnel in, in one of the highest uh, law enforcement agencies in the world. But the leadership of the FBI has been corrupt. And we just replaced one corrupt one with another one and with another one. To me, and this is me talking, this is, I'm sure that, by the way, Russia and I would have a difference of opinion with this, maybe. But to me, I think that the FBI should be disbanded completely. And we should start from the ground up with a new law enforcement agency that has the same mandate as the FBI, but one that is vetted to make sure that not just the leadership, but the agents are apolitical. You look at what this coup attempt was against President Trump and how deeply the FBI was involved in that. Right. And the lies they told to get that to move that investigation forward. And there has been no accountability of that. So we don't start at the same place with looking at law enforcement the, the same way. I've always been suspicious of law enforcement. They are an agent. They are government agents. They work for the same big government that we always talk about that can be corrupted with too much power. Now, again, I'm pro-law enforcement. I do believe that the law, the majority of people who choose law enforcement a career are decent human beings who enter for all the right reasons. But I do believe that law enforcement as practice in this country has major problems that it is yet to address, including the blue walls of, 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 of silence. How is that any different than criminals with their don't snitch or you end up in a ditch routine. It's the same kind of mindset, the same kind of behavior. That may have been a little bit more than... No, 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 no. I mean, the blue the blue wall analogy is interesting. It kind of makes you think of the old... Um, uh, Casa Nostra, the old mafia line, Omerta, like the like the vow, of, Omerta, like, like the exactly. vow of silence, right? Um, but look, the J. Edgar Hoover reference is fascinating. I actually was on with Bob France, the Cleveland, Ohio radio host, just this morning, and I and when I was on with Bob, I said that if this does ultimately escalate to a Republican call to abolish or come something close to abolish the FBI, it, it would be somewhat of a poetic justice, a coming full circle from the J. Edgar Hoover era. You know, query whether the FBI was was ever, you know, what I think a lot of us kind of grew up thinking what it was, but it does seem like certainly at least at the origin point and now that it, that it is very, very, very bad. But one question that that I have, and because I, I, I agree with you, I, I do think at this point, when you go back to Comey and Russiagate, the Steele dossier, which was just Hillary Clinton, oppo research, the P-tape. I mean, my goodness. I mean, the fact that, you know, United States law enforcement could be complicit with that just sordid, fabricated, uh, you know, style of electioneering and politicking is just, it's just patently insane. But when we talk about building a new agency from scratch, the problem that I always come back to, I mean, I mean, where are we going to recruit from, right? I, I mean, like, even like, even like the military academies these days are oftentimes just being fed with all this kind of, you know, this self-hatred, this national self-loathing narrative. And when we talk about how we on the right need to form kind of a new crop of elites in general, that's that's kind of a question that I just have yet to answer is, is where we go about recruiting the next generation of leaders from to staff all these new agencies that we need. I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I do. I think that one of the things that we need to do is acknowledge 
that we live in a polarized society, acknowledge that most people that are politically interested at all have biases. The issue is not that you're politically biased. The issue is if you can't put your bias aside. And so I think the vetting on anything like this has to be realistic. Can you put your political bias aside to either conduct yourself in an apolitical manner? And does your track record say that you can do that? And so I think the emphasis has to be on vetting of people, vetting on their character. And certainly, if we did the kind of scrupulous background checks that would be required for every single agent and for the leadership, we could certainly do better than we have at the top of the leadership of the FBI right now. Let me transition a little bit here because, you know, I, I think every talking head worth his salt is, is talking nonstop about the FBI raid. And, and to be clear, we should be. I mean, it is it is truly outrageous stuff, in my opinion, here. But I, I want to kind of take it out a little bit and go back to a slightly broader macro level view here. What do you think is the single biggest issue facing the United States right now? Is it just this polarization that has reached a fever pitch or, or is there something else that comes immediately to mind? America has been a polarized nation since America was founded. I agree with that, actually. Yep. <laughs> and so I don't think the polarization is the issue. I do think that there is an underlying lack of morality that has been uh, set in motion in this country and has grown for years and years. This goes back to just what I was saying about vetting. If you have moral people, if you have people who are aware of their own flaws and conscious of it, they will still make the right decisions because what overrides all of that is the willingness and the and the and the objective to be a righteous human being. And it even sounds funny when you say that a righteous human being. Yeah, but that was what was part of the American social contract. Yep. For so many decades, you know, my dad and his generation fought in World War II. My dad was a World War II and Korean War vet. Now, why in the world would a black man in America feel proud about joining the military, go overseas to fight people for America, come back home and still have pride and love for the country that will not allow him to go into a movie theater unless he sits in a balcony or denies him jobs. That's because underneath all of it, there was a hope and a trust that America would live up to the promises that our founders made. And we have largely done that in this generation. We have crossed all of those lines that were holding us back. What is now holding America back are people who don't understand the American experience and how unique this nation is, and also people who are given way to immoral behavior. And that would include all of the things that we see prevalent in the blue cities today, this, this unleashing of the criminals where they can just commit crime after crime and walk the street. And then on the other side, the people that are supposed to maintain safety and order for neighborhoods and for societies that derelict in their duty because of some misguided uh, um, moralism that puts racism and a racial perversion ahead of everything else. So I think we have to return to a social contract where we recognize the basics of good versus evil of good versus bad, of good behavior 
versus bad behavior of we can't we shouldn't be greedy and do anything for money at all costs, including doing things that are against our moral values. That is the nation that I think we have to return to being that kind of a social contract where even during the Depression years, people still, for the most part in this country, held on to their morality. It's extremely well said. I mean, I'm glad you, you that you did mention, you know, the race issue, because it's just really sad to me, honestly, to see these charlatans and hucksters, people like Ibram X. Kendi talk about how the imperative now is to actively discriminate against white people as a, to try to make up for past grievances and wrongs. I mean, I think from the Ibram X. Kendi perspective, you know, Martin Luther King himself, the great Martin Luther King, was, was a de facto racist uh, because he didn't do enough actively to discriminate. He just actually, you know, he got this radical idea that that we're all born equal and that we have, and that we have all equal rights. So just the absolute drivel that is being inculcated to very easily warped to susceptible young minds today when it comes to the issue of race really just makes me profoundly sad because I'm just born on Abraham Lincoln's birthday and I was just always born and raised and kind of came of age thinking that Lincoln and Martin Luther King had it right, that we're actually all equal, no favors, no nothing like that. So I'm really happy that you that you mentioned that there. But let's we're, we're coming to a close here, but let me, let me close on this note because it's a kind of a logical way to close based on what you just said there. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of America based on everything that you've seen, that you've read, that you've experienced? Or do you tend to, towards being hopeful or not so much? I am very optimistic about America. I think you see that most people, <clears throat> including some of our liberal friends, want the same things. We want to be proud of our country. We want to have a good life. We want our children to have a better life than we, than we have. We want prosperity. We want to live in a society free of worries where we don't have to worry every time we walk out the door if some criminal is going to take our life or take our possessions. I think most people in this country would like to return to a to the, where the rule of law is recognized as a good thing and not something that we should disparage. So I think that that and I think that what we saw in Donald Trump by the way, now liberals would disagree with this. I think that's one of the most hopeful things ever. We have a guy that talked the language of the people who was all about making America, as he put it, great again. Now, people can argue with what that means, but him speaking to people in that tone was what got him elected and, and, and the follow through on that. Now, whether Trump continues and, 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 and is successful in, in number one, avoiding all the, the, the legal traps that have been laid before him in this persecution, or whether it will be some other candidate, there are people that are rising, in the Republican Party especially. Look at the governor of Virginia. Look at Ron DeSantis. Look at what we have with Christine. No, we have people that are, that are outstanding, and they're, and they're leaders that are unafraid now to go against the mainstream left. We have leadership that is emerging, that are basically talking about the need to educate all of our children and use charter schools and private education as well to help uh, in this horrible decline of education that we're seeing in American public schools. We have people that are interested in bringing 
true reforms to our energy market that are not based on superstitions about uh, um, clean power that will never be able to power our society. So yeah, it's gonna we're gonna continue to have a fight in America between the two ideologies. But as I said, we've been fighting as a country. Um, we've been fighting as a country since the beginning. Right. And 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 here's something very hopeful. After close to fifty years. America has ended its state-sanctioned genocide against unborn children in the womb. And that happened because Donald Trump fulfilled his promise and Mitch McConnell, I have to give him credit for that too, (laughs) in making sure that we had justices uh, uh, that were nominated and, and put on the Supreme Court who actually read and understand and respect the Constitution. And so I'm very optimistic, and I think that we are just beginning. Uh, We are a young nation. We're still a young nation. The countries in Europe, the societies in Asia, if you go even to some of the civilization that existed in Middle Eastern countries, we have thousands and thousands of years of humanity before us. We haven't even hit the 500-year mark. We are a young nation. And as long as we can continue to produce people who believe in the American experience, who can who can uh, teach it to their offspring, yeah, it's going to be a battle. It's not going to be a cakewalk. But I think America is destined for greater things than we could ever imagine. Well, it's, re- it's remarkably well said, and that's a, that's a much needed white pill at moments that can feel a little dark like these. So, James Golden, aka Bo Snurley, really, really, really grateful to have you on this week. Thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thanks again to Bo Snurley for stopping by. So I want to shift gears a little bit here in our final moments of the podcast this week. I was actually out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming this past weekend. I was speaking at a pro-life summit. It was the inaugural Lawmakers Summit put on by Live Action, which is one of my very favorite pro-life organizations out there, founded by the great Lila Rose. We'll have to book Lyra, Lila, have her on on a future podcast here. Really, really, really terrific stuff from Live Action. Actually, funny aside, so I landed there in Jackson Hole last Friday. I actually split a van with some other of the state lawmakers who were here for this conference. And actually, there was a U.S. congressman who was joining us who actually flew to Jackson Hole there to campaign for Liz Cheney's primary challenger, Harriet Hageman. So kind of funny insofar as Wyoming, all of a sudden, the least populous state kind of became ground zero of the political universe. But anyway, this summit, they convened roughly 30 state lawmakers or so who are kind of strategic allies and fighters in the pro-life cause, pro-family cause kind of social conservative causes in general from all across the country there. I spoke on a couple of panels. I first presented on the Constitution panel. So I was talking about just the Dobbs case, which we've talked about, of course, many, many times on this podcast. And then I also kind of teamed up with my good friend, Josh Craddock, with whom I actually recently co-authored a Newsweek op-ed on this topic. And we discussed the argument that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause actually affirmatively protects 
unborn human life all across the country because the unborn are a class of human beings and therefore homicide statutes, uh, if they discriminate against the unborn in favor of the born, they violate the Equal Protection Clause. But I also served on another panel, and that's a little bit more what I want to talk to you about right here. The other panel I spoke on was on family policy, family policy being kind of a loose term that refers to kind of the a suite of possible policies that are intended to provide direct support to families, families who have children in particular. You've seen uh, some success stories out of Central and Eastern Europe when it comes to family policy over the past five, 10 years or so. The nations of Hungary and Poland, I think in particular, have kind of led the charge when it comes to family policy and kind of direct governmental support to try to either incentivize children, that would be kind of natalism, that would be pro-family Uh, policies directed to increase the fertility rate or from kind of a more kind of anodyne perspective, just direct support for the simple sake that families are worth supporting and that pro-lifers, perhaps of any and all people, should be involved, should be fiscally invested in supporting families. And, you know, it was really, really interesting because this on this panel on family policy at the live action summit this past weekend, it was me, Eric Tietzel, who's been, uh, he's a friend, he's been working for Senator Josh Hawley in Missouri in the Senate for the past few years. Eric's kind of a social conservative leader, especially in kind of evangelical Protestant circles. And then Erica Bakayoki from the Ethics and Public Policy Center was on the panel as well. Erica's a Catholic, so we had kind of a religious cross-spectrum there. But we were kind of all in unison as far as calling for greater aid to families. And there are various policies at the federal level. Mitt Romney has what's called the Family Security Act. There's now the second edition of that, which is bigger and better than the previous version. Josh Hawley himself had a parental tax credit. Senator Rubio and Senator Lee of Florida and Utah, respectively, have kind of co-sponsored an increase in the child tax credit. So there's all sorts of various ways that this kind of thing can go. The interesting thing, we'll have to come back to this on a future podcast. I think we're going to have Oren Cast from American Compass on soon. He'll be the perfect guest to discuss this with. The interesting thing was just kind of seeing some of the pushback, actually, that we got from some of the lawmakers who were there who really just kind of heard what we were saying and just heard welfare. I mean, they just heard this as welfare, big government, blah, blah, blah. Political economy really is ground zero, I think, of this fight. And again, we're going to bring on Oren Kastin from American Compass. He's the absolute perfect person to discuss that with. Can't wait to bring him on the podcast soon. But until then, this has been another episode of The Josh Hammer Show. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.